As we come now before the very word of God, you can turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read with me to Matthew chapter 4. It's no surprise by this point, we're in Matthew chapter 4. Before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that what your word says is true, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That what we are about to hear here is from your very mouth. And that these things are more important to us than what we had for breakfast, what we will have for lunch or dinner. This is, this is food for us, life for us to sustain us. So Lord, would you open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see that by your spirit you would sustain us in these things. Guide us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This is Matthew in chapter 4. I want to take uh, this morning a, a good portion of the chapter. We'll read these first 11 verses. So Matthew chapter 4, we'll begin here in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of God. Now, the subject at hand for us today is the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus. Although I will mention up front that there is probably a better word, or at least another word for it than temptation, we'll talk about that as we get to it. But here we are. This, this is the scene where Jesus is confronted by the devil himself in the wilderness. And one thing that often surprises people who are new to the Bible, or, or maybe at least less familiar with the Bible, is just how infrequently we see the devil throughout the pages of Scripture. 
So Satan is a fairly, you know, familiar, common, cultural figure. Even people who aren't Christians or, or Jews, you know, seem to know at least something about, about Satan. And so some people get the impression that his role in the Bible is sort of like it would be in a comic book with superheroes. You know, that we have the hero who's God, and then we have the villain, the big bad guy who's, who's Satan, and that God and Satan are just going to be fighting all the time that there's going to be this big, you know, shower of sparks and clank of swords and big clash of power all the time. And that's just not the case. We do see Satan in the full arc of the Bible. That is, that he's in the very first pages of Genesis, and he's in the very last pages of the book of Revelation, and he's throughout, but only rarely throughout does he actually make his presence seen. In all the spaces in between, we, we only rarely see him. Now, that does not mean that Satan is in the space between, you know, sitting in some mossy castle down in hell, you know, playing video games and eating flaming hot Cheetos or whatever other food they have in, in hell. He's not just, you know, biding time. Meanwhile, the scripture says the devil prowls around like a lion. That is, that he's routinely stalking his prey in a way that is quiet, soft-footed, and crafty. So whether we see Satan in every page or not, the conflict between Satan and almost anything else is still very, very present. We hear it even from the first pages of the Garden of Eden. You know, you know how it goes. The serpent, that is the devil, tricks Adam and Eve into sin, that, that they see the fruit as desirous and, and they disobey God. They bite the fruit. And so as, as a result, all of creation, not just man, but all of creation descends into a fall. And everything is put under the curse of sin. And we're told as a result of that in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman, Eve, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. And the serpent will bruise his heel. That is, between the two, both will be struck, but only one will be victorious with a crushing blow to the head. So here now in the wilderness, we see part of that bruising battle between Jesus and Satan. And this battle has no swords, no flamethrowers, no knives, there's no blood at all. This big battle is just a conversation. Most of this account is just them talking but it's a conversation that's woven with a triplet of temptations. And temptation is far more dangerous than any knife, bullet, or otherwise. This one conversation has the potential to overturn everything. Now, this epic event is mainly about Jesus. Jesus is the center of this. It is not mainly a model for us. 
So it's not mainly about how we should combat temptation to sin. But even though that's not the primary focus, there are still principles here that we might apply to our circumstances. So the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians that God is faithful and he will provide a way to escape temptation so that we will be able to endure it. That's true of believers, and we see that Jesus is a master of this here. So we can learn things about how he responds. Most people, the first thing we ought to notice is that Jesus fights off this temptation with Scripture. You know, almost all of the words that Jesus says in this account are just straight quotations from the Old Testament. He's speaking the truth of God's word over top of Satan's lies. So we're seeing here what we hear from the Psalms, the line that says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus has done that in the long years before the spending time filling up his heart with the word of God that are now at the ready to defend him against temptation. We see that he, he fights it with scripture. We also see that he sends Satan away. So lots of people fight temptation, try to fight it off, but sometimes we forget to fight the tempter as well, to interact directly with the tempter. In fact, Jesus here, the only words that he says, aside from quotations of scripture, are the words, be gone, Satan. Aside from just quotation, that's all he says, be gone, Satan. He says it in the third, third round. That is that he doesn't allow Satan to linger long, to continue to poke him, needle at him, you know, with temptation again and again and again, just a little bit and a little more and a little more and a little more until eventually surrender. He just says, get out. And Satan does. And the last thing that many observe here about Jesus that might be appropriate in our situation is that, that he's well aware of his vulnerabilities. You know, we know Jesus is God. He is fully God, but he's also man, fully man. So here in the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, he is hungry, he is tired, he's alone. He's particularly vulnerable. His defense against sin is particularly weakened here. In fact, this same account, the temptation of Jesus, as Luke records it in his gospel, Luke includes a little tiny note at the end of the account that when Satan left him, he says, Satan left him until an opportune time. So Satan doesn't just hit us whenever he, you know, whenever he can. He's clever and looks for an opportune time, times of particular weakness to really get at us. We know there are times where we are more vulnerable to sin than other times. And it takes only just a little bit of temptation to get us to bite on the sin. This happened to me this week. I mean, I'm sure it happens to me every week. Uh, there was, you know, a time this week that it was really rough, just to be honest. You don't need all the details, but a series of things. I was frustrated and tired and overwhelmed and was not realizing my vulnerability. So I would like to say that I fought off sin with Scripture, 
that I cited parts of Deuteronomy and just sent Satan off packing, but I didn't. Instead, I just let myself sink into this quicksand of self-pity. Self-pity is a serious sin. I was definitely losing the battle. In fact, I wasn't even really fighting the battle at all. And the only thing that really snapped me back, there are plenty of things that could do that, that the Lord uses, but the thing that snapped me back aware of this is contact with God and his word. You know, we were getting ready for a Bible study where we're talking about what it means to be blessed, and blessed is the poor in spirit. And I heard the words of the tax collector guy who beats his chest and just cries out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's going to get me again. And, and that hearing that, the Holy Spirit used that to just slice right into me. You know, cut open all that pride, expose my selfishness, see that sort of self-pity that I was descending into, suddenly aware then of my vulnerabilities. And it broke this sort of spell that I was under. The Holy Spirit would give me strength again to continue to fight against temptation. There are good things in this section that we can learn about how to respond to temptation ourselves, but that is not the reason why Matthew includes it in his gospel. This isn't a how-to guide. It's not as if at the end of this scene, Jesus, you know, drops the mic and goes, and that's how you do it. This is more than just an example from Jesus for us. This is a real experience for Jesus. Something that he felt. Satan then craftily sets before Jesus three temptations, three that are very common to man, temptations to provision, to protection, and to power. If you look through, you see these already. Provision, that he would uh, be tempted to turn stones into bread so he can satisfy his own hunger. Temptation to protection, that he, he would show evidence that the angels would keep him safe, even if he jumped off the temple willingly, that they would uphold him. Then the, the temptation to power, that all the glory of all the kingdoms on, on earth would be his if he would just exchange it for bowing to Satan. That last one, by the way, this power in exchange for worship, we know that's sin. <laughs> it's the most like, blatantly obvious sin one. That is sin in itself. Jesus is given all the glory of all the kingdoms of the world, but that does not just instantly happen. He's given this glory of all the kingdoms of the world through obedience to the Father through willingly submitting himself to death and then in his own resurrection. That's how he accomplishes the glory of the kingdoms. But Satan's trying to give him a little shortcut, a little workaround. Just take a quick knee to me, and I will give you all the glory of all the kingdoms. And we know, of course, Jesus knows as well, that bowing to Satan is sin. But you notice that not all of the temptations here are sin in themselves. Bowing to Satan is sin in itself, but to turn stones into bread, that's amazing, but it's not sin in itself. 
You know, Jesus is able to do this very soon, not too much longer after this. Jesus is going to turn five loaves and two fish into a whole multitude to feed 5,000 people. He can surely turn a couple of pebbles into a Ritz cracker or something. He's able to do it, but he doesn't, not because the act itself is sin, but because the reason for the act makes it sin. You know, two people could do the exact same thing. And for one, it is good, and for the other, it is sin. The thing that might make them different is that their motives, their reason for doing the thing are different. So two people could say to me, fortunately no one has done this this morning, so you don't think I'm talking about you. Uh, I'm not talking about any of you at all. But some, two people could say to me, I like your tie. And I would say, thank you, it is nice, isn't it? Uh, but, but for one, they could say that just as a genuine compliment because they like the tie and they want me to know. Another person might say that to me because they're trying to flatter me trying to make me happy with them, trying to please me in some way. And in that sense, that would be sin. Sin, then, is not only the things that we do. It is also the reason why we do the things that we do. So the reason here that Satan is getting at, particularly when he's talking about the stones into bread, Satan is trying to get Jesus to abuse his position. You may have noticed this. Some of the first words that he says are these. If you are the Son of God, then do this. If you are the Son of God. When he says that, when Satan says that, by using that little word, if, if you are the Son of God, it's not because he's trying to cast doubt on whether Jesus is the Son of God or not. He's saying, given that you're the Son of God, you should use that position. You should use that power for your own gain. If you're the Son of God, go ahead and do this. You're hungry, after all. What's wrong with that? If, if you are the Son of God, just go ahead and transform a bit of bread for yourself. This is the exact same sort of thing that we see at the end of Jesus' life, a temptation that he faces even on, uh, when he's on the cross in his crucifixion, that people shout at him, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Son of God, let him use that. If he's the Son of God, let him get himself down from the cross. Let him save himself. And yet Jesus never, not here, not ever, gives in to the temptation to use his own position for his own benefit. Just a rabbit trail worth making here. That particular temptation is pervasive the temptation to abuse a position for our own gain. We see it everywhere, right? 
could see it at anyone of any sort of powerful position. So, you know, politicians and corporate owners, celebrities, sometimes even religious leaders or pastors, sadly, achingly, anyone with power can abuse that. But it's not just powerful people. Really, anyone can be prone to this. You may be. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus who has put true faith in Jesus, that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that means you are forever an adopted child of God. It's good news, important news. Forever a child of God, that is forever forgiven of all of your sin through Jesus. Forever an heir of the kingdom of God. And nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are his. Nothing can pull you out of his hand. Not even you yourself. You're his and nothing can change that ever. We're to rest in that. That's good for us. And yet, there can be a temptation for the Christian to hear in our ear, in the back of our mind, this position is settled. I could use it to think, I'm a child of God. God has already forgiven me in Jesus. He's already made my place in his heavenly kingdom secure, so I can just go ahead with this one little sin. I can just go ahead with this one little bad habit. It's not going to count against me anyway. I'll be fine. Do you see how much then that is an abuse? Not just of our position, but abuse of God's grace, abuse of God's love, abuse of God's faithfulness so that we can have one little dance with the devil. It is not worth it to pursue that. And yet we often do it again and again and again. Jesus, however, is different. Jesus is different. He does not abuse his position. He does not surrender to sin. Jesus puts the Father before himself. And in the end of this situation, the temptations wither, the devil leaves, and the angels come to attend to his needs. Now, this brings us to a very important question, which is this. Why does this happen to Jesus? Why is Jesus tempted here? We know Satan is trying to destroy Jesus. He's about to begin the work of the kingdom. His ministry is that it culminates in the salvation of sinners. So Satan's trying to take all of that apart. Of course, that's one reason, but that's not the only reason why this happens. Look closely at the beginning of the account, if you're reading. Let me read again, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Did you catch this? This whole scene is part of the work of the Spirit, not just the work of Satan. Jesus has just come in the previous verses from his baptism, 
Sort of this big inauguration of the beginning of his public work and ministry. The father pronounces to everyone that's there, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so now it's all going to begin. But the first act of Jesus' ministry is not to go out right away and heal. It's not to go out right away and teach. It's not to go out right away and do some miracles, turn water into wine and stop in all the storms and all those things. No, his first act is to go into the wilderness because that's where the Spirit has led him to be tempted by Satan. This wasn't just an accident that happened at the end of 40 days. The Spirit's purpose in leading him there was to be tempted. So there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit is part of even initiating this temptation of Christ. Now, at some point, some people might say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, preacher. Are you saying that God is in some way tempting Jesus? I mean, doesn't the Bible tell us never to say God is tempting us? It does. It's in James. Doesn't the Bible say that we shouldn't say that because God cannot be tempted into sin and he himself tempts no one? True, that's also in James. That's true. Jesus never tempts us. God never tempts us. That is, he never tries to trap us into doing evil. But God does do something else. You remember how I said at the beginning that, that temptation may not be the best word or at least the only word for what's happening here? The word tempt can mean to try to entice someone into sin. And that's exactly what Satan is trying to do here. It's a fitting translation for what Satan does, but that's not what the Spirit is after in this moment. The word for temptation here can also mean test. That the sp- he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. In other words, a testing is to show what a person is made of. Jesus gets tested a lot throughout his ministry. We see a whole bunch of times throughout Matthew gets tested by people to see what he's going to say about signs, what he's going to say about divorce, what he says about taxes, what he says about the greatest commandment. But here, in this first testing, he's being tested on his faithfulness. This whole scene in this temptation slash testing of Jesus. This whole scene with Jesus and Satan is full of these echoes and references back to another testing in the wilderness. Way back in the Old Testament when Israel for 40 years was tested after they came out of Egypt. And in that time, uh, Moses says this to them. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is right before, by the way, the verse where he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right before he says that, Moses says this to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse, verse 2. Listen for the, for the testing. Verse 2, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
Did you hear it? The point of the testing in the wilderness is not because God's trying to learn something that he doesn't already know. God is testing to uncover something, to show what was in your heart, to show what they're made of. And in that testing in the wilderness, Israel fails. It's like there's a big old giant red buzzer. Testing, fail, unfaithful. And as the Old Testament unfolds, there is one failure after another for the people of God. Even when it looks like they're on track for a little bit and things are going to be better now and they're all going to be okay, there's a, there's a fall back into, into sin and fail. You know, God has called his people Israel, he calls them my son, he calls them to be faithful to his covenant promises, and yet, and yet as he tests their heart, we see them abandon God, you know, ignore God, they don't love God, and it seems after all of this that the whole thing is just lost. That all those ancient promises of God would come untrue. That the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman not in her heel, but in her, in her head, in a fatal blow. And to watch this again and again and again in the Old Testament, it's just, it's hard to look at it. And not just because there are some truly awful, awful things that the people do in the Old Testament, but it's hard to look at also because we know in some way that this is a reflection of our own hearts. This is a reflection of who we are too, if we're honest. I would imagine this is true of you as well. If you're honest, I'm sure there are times when you can hear that grating, shameful sound of the buzzer. <clears throat> Fail. Unfaithful, unloving. And in the midst of all this cacophony of buzzers, out steps Jesus. And before Jesus begins his good work of the kingdom, the good news of salvation, he's first led by the Spirit into the wilderness for the revealing of his heart. But not on day one, not on day two, not on day five or day ten. He spends 40 days and nights alone with no food, and then he's visited by the ancient serpent himself to be tested, to be tempted with the craftiest tricks the devil has in his bag. But when all is said and done here and Satan is gone, for the first time in the whole history of man, there's no red buzzer. Instead, there's just silence. Peace 
as the angels minister to him, Jesus, Jesus passed. He passed the test. And he'll continue to pass that test. He's shown that his heart is made of real righteousness, real faithfulness, real love. This scene is setting the stage for everything that is to come, that we'll see Jesus as the true Israelite, as the holy son of God, as the great high priest, as the victorious conqueror, all these things who will crush the head of the servant and serpent and save every failing sinner who has come to him by faith in spite of our own big red buzzers. And what are we to do with a text like this? Where does this leave us? There's a call in the wilderness here, but it's a call not just to show us how to do it, something we're supposed to, mem- to remember and mimic. It's a call to show us how Jesus did it, to show us that he's really everything for us, that he's all our righteousness, he's all our hope, he's he's our confidence in the midst of our failures. We're looking to Jesus then. Last words, as we draw to him, Hebrews chapter 4 puts it this way. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we praise you for your faithfulness, that you have shunned sin and passed the test. You've shown your own holiness. Would you help us by your spirit not to enter into temptation ourselves, to flee from sin, but most of all, Lord, that you would bring us before the throne of grace with confidence to look to you and not ourselves, that we would see the victory over Satan and sin that is found in you. Thank you for doing this for us. You're a good God, and we love and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.